Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Hey, everybody. I've got a boatload of Patreon questions to answer. Let's dive in. The first one comes from Anna. Anna writes, My partner and I are working to get a puppy in the next few years. We're researching breeds, breeders, lines, etc. I'm the one doing most of the research as I want a responsibly bred dog that is the right fit for our home. I'm also the one doing most of the training research and will likely be the one to continue that. My boyfriend, however, is the one that works from home and likely will be responsible for the puppy during the day for the first few months. How do we balance training and taking care of the puppy together, but at different times of the day? Will it be too confusing for the puppy for both of us to be training it, especially if our puppy raising knowledge is on different levels? I've binge listened to the CogDog radio and I feel like I'm ready to train a puppy, whereas my boyfriend knows almost nothing about raising a dog. The puppy would be our first dog together and both of our first times raising a puppy. Well, Anna, congrats on the puppy that will be coming your way. Having a dog is, you know, in my completely unbiased opinion, about the best thing that anybody can experience. Um, So I'm so happy for you. Here's the thing. Without this becoming like a relationships advice podcast, because no one would ask me for that, I will say that communication is going to be key here and communication is a two-way street not a not a not a like I'm teaching you how to do the things right and you have to do them that way kind of situation I hear you you are the one that's going to know more you are the one that's going to have opinions about how things are done that are based in facts and research and your boyfriend's probably going to have opinions about how things are done that maybe aren't based in those things and so You guys got to talk about this stuff. Like if you're talking about getting a puppy and you're talking about breeds, you also need to talk about what do we want our puppy to learn in the first year? What do we want our puppy to grow up understanding in the first year? He will be home with the puppy during the day. You have to get on the same page about what that's going to look like. Puppies cannot just sit in a crate all day and they also cannot be free to wreak havoc on your house or be left in a backyard all day. So... This is about getting on the same page. This isn't about, here's the right protocol that both of you will find very easy to do. It's about find the protocols that feel good to both of you and talk about them ahead of time so that you are on roughly the same page. And then accept being on roughly the same page. You'll never be on exactly the same page. If you want his help and you want this to be a mutual experience, then you need to accept that there will be differences in the way that you approach things and just kind of decide what your deal breakers are and decide generally how you want this to look. The next one comes from Aaliyah who writes, when giving a dog a choice, How long should I wait before reframing it as a no choice? For instance, when we come back from a hike, I usually give my dog a cue to get in the car. If he doesn't, I wait a bit until he decides to. Usually after a couple minutes when he sees me toss treats in the car kennel, he decides it's worth it. But if he feels like it, this boy can lay down and not move for an impressive amount of time. 
if it gets to a point where I really have to go, how should I reframe it as a no choice without poisoning my get in the car queue? Right now, if it has been too long, I start playing some quick games with him, do a treat scatter, and then I say I'm picking you up and I put him in the car. Is this a good approach? So Aaliyah, I think a lot of people probably have questions along these lines. Here's the problem. This isn't a choice ever. Asking the dog to get in the car at the end of a walk isn't a choice. If it were, then you'd have to accept that he said no. You're not accepting that he said no. You're not accepting that he said no at any phase here. You are convincing him to do it rather than accepting no. A true choice accepts no. So you need to frame this as a no choice from the beginning. And I think it would be fine to approach the car, do a treat scatter, say I'm picking you up, pick him up and put him in the car. Start there. Your initial question how long should I wait before reframing this as no choice is the problem. So it's when giving a dog a choice, how long should I wait before reframing it as a no choice? You don't need to wait to do that because you shouldn't be doing that. If you give them a choice, it is a choice and it doesn't get to be turned into a no choice. So because this isn't actually a choice, it shouldn't be framed as a choice at all. And that doesn't mean that it's nasty and it doesn't mean that it's mean to him or upsetting to him. It just means this is what's happening and I'm not giving you a choice about it. So it's kind of like if you have a little kid that needs to go to bed, it's time to go and wash up and get the pajamas on and go to bed. You don't say to them, do you want to go to bed now? Unless it truly is a choice and they can stay up another hour if they want to or whatever, right? Instead, you say, you know, you offer choice where you can. You say, which pajamas do you want to wear? You know, the red ones or the blue ones? That's the choice they get. The going to bed part's not the choice, right? So like, I don't even offer my dogs a choice of where to ride in the car. They ride in a crate and they ride in the same one every time. So getting in the car, not full of a lot of choices for me with my dogs, because typically it isn't. Typically it's we're done hiking, we got to go home, or we're going to training, you got to get in the car, we're going to a dog show, like we got a ring time, you got to get in the car. It's okay for a lot, for things in your dog's life to not be a choice. Just by the nature of the fact that they live with us, a lot of things are not a choice. So you give them agency where you can. This isn't one of those places. Taylor's asking, can you clarify what asking your dog for behavior looks like? And that's, this is something that I say a lot. And Taylor, I really appreciate you asking me to clarify because Taylor goes on to say, I think my autistic brain interpreted it as literally saying, can you sit? And that's not what you're actually doing. You're right, Taylor. That's not what I'm doing. So thanks for asking me to clarify this. I have like an extremely holistic brain. So like I, this didn't occur to me that this might be an issue. And I really just thank you so much for bringing it up. So when I say ask your dog for behavior, that's because you're basically always asking. That's actually just a language shift away from giving the dog a command. I don't like to say give the dog a command because I think that our words matter and our words affect our attitudes towards our dogs and towards everything. And so I don't like to say And now command your dog to sit because it's not a command. Like I'm not going to do anything to him if he doesn't sit. I am asking him. So literally just any cues I give, I might frame verbally as asking. All right, Tabitha writes, I have a dog, female one-year-old Labrador, who can stay calm on leash very close to agility happening. She can stay on place away from me as well when I'm setting up agility equipment or playing with another dog, but she cannot stand to be kenneled 
when these things are happening. I did follow Happy Creating and she does great in the home and in the car while driving and even in one of our agility classes where I can stay next to the kennel most of the whole time, almost the whole time. However, she barks very loudly and persistently when I leave the car and she is still kenneled or when she's kenneled in agility class and I can't stay near her most of the time. This makes me worried about the trials in our near future. She is happy with the chew, but I would have to spend a fortune with how fast she goes through everything. How do I break this down? So you're on the right track, Tabitha, saying that she can be on a place. So that's a a station, I think. Um, So if she can stay on a station away from you, then your next step would be that she's staying in a crate with the door open. So it's still a stationed behavior with you, with you walking away and doing those other things. It sounds like where she starts to be upset is that she is anticipating fun things and then you leave and she can't follow you because that door is closed, right? So there's a few problems here. One is that she hasn't been trained to wait in the crate while you go away and set things up. So go back to happy creating. Make sure you've gone through happier creating, which is the second part of that program, and go through the procedures in which you actually teach the dog to be in the crate while you set up for training and things like that. So go back there. There There's some holes in the training here. But also, if your dog is practicing this and then getting to do agility, they are chaining those things together. So if the dog is losing its mind in the crate and then gets to drag you into the arena and then do agility, or maybe doesn't even drag you in, but is losing its mind in the crate, then walks in, then does agility, they're chaining this whole thing together and you have to orchestrate it so that that stops happening. And that will take some of your creativity, that will take some of your brain power, but essentially chaining these things together is what makes these things never stop happening for a lot of people. So you're right to be a little concerned about it as far as you've got trials coming up, and I would dig in your heels and really work on it. Yvonne writes, I have a question about barking on course in agility. I have a baby border collie nine months old who shows signs of being a course barker. Do you feel that it diminishes performance? And if so, what should I do to train away from it? So Yvonne, I think there are a lot of dogs who do agility really well and bark. A lot of dogs can bark perfectly fine and and be perfectly fine and respond to cues appropriately. And that might be your dog. So what you should be asking yourself is not, is the dog barking, but is the dog doing everything else I'm asking and doing it appropriately? Because if she is, then you're fine. It's not a problem. It's only a problem if it's a problem. And typically barking itself is not the problem. It's the fact that barking is a symptom of the dog not being okay in their head. And if they're not okay in their head, their behaviors are not going to be good. They're going to lose precision. They're not going to do what you're asking them to do. So those are the things I would be watching for. Okay, Morgan writes, in my sport, barking and intensity are valued or seen as normal parts of the game, and dogs do perform well even when they seem to be spinning out of control to outsiders. I don't see a clear distinction in this culture between drive and arousal, as I may in other areas of the dog world. Is it possible that these dogs who are displaying what some would call over-arousal are just repeating rehearsed behaviors and are in fact in optimal arousal where is the line drawn so morgan you might know that i teach a two-day workshop on arousal and arousal behaviors and performance specifically and the reason i'm telling you that is because it would take me approximately 16 hours to appropriately answer this question and that's not happening right now so just like the answer to yvonne's question the question is is the dog performing correctly is the dog staying accurate is the dog doing the things as they are trained to do them. Because if they are, then the barking and the intensity are are fine. 
It's about what the dog is doing. It's not about these kind of other behaviors that are coming along. It's about can the dog continue to respond the way that they're trained, continue to do the things that I ask, not hurt themselves, etc. I don't think that this kind of optimal arousal thing truly exists. Like I think that's a little bit of a, a worrisome term that gets uh, thrown around. But again, 16 hours to answer that question. Worked Up will be online, will be in the membership later this year, and I am going to be teaching it all over the place next year. So more later, but essentially watch for what the dogs are doing, not the kind of other behaviors that are happening. Okay, Brenda writes, I am planning to train more cooperative care skills with my new puppy from the beginning. I recall that with Raya, the appearance of a licky mat means humans are going to do stupid stuff. I'm thinking ahead to the sequence of things, not wanting to poison, and what should be a happy CER about a licky mat. Would you bullet point your steps for combining the licky mat and the stupid stuff? Because in my head, the good things should come after the stupid stuff. But I'm also guessing you start with incredibly mild stupid stuff, then work up to vaccines and such. Thanks. So I use the licky mat before the dog has any skills. Licky mat is not a skill. Like eating, you know, yes, licking off the licky mat, I teach them to like that. And they have it all the time. They don't only have it in those scenarios. And the dog doesn't have any skills. So it's literally just here, have this while I'm going to do this other thing. If the puppy is already overly sensitive to body handling, already has really high pain responses, this isn't going to work for you. That wasn't Raya. Raya is a nice, easy to handle dog. She's been the easiest dog I've had so far in regards to those things. And so that worked just fine. You're thinking along the lines of like, if this is a classical conditioning protocol, the thing should come after the thing. Even if it's an operant conditioning protocol, the thing should come after the thing. Yes, that's true. Also, it's way more complicated than that. And the fact is that the licky mat is a cue to enjoy this snack while some semi-weird stuff happens. If the semi-weird stuff is also really painful, really scary, yeah, it's not going to work for you. It can't be. So that's where that um, triangular relationship, that that three-pronged thing of desensitization to the handling, as well as the skills training, as well as some of that counter-conditioning is going to be really important. And I go back to, I'm not sure when the Cog Dog Club was that I talked about cooperative care most recently, but go check that one out. That will answer these questions more. And everybody, if you're not in Patreon or the membership, you don't have access to that video, but it is in both Patreon and the membership. All right, Allie writes, tips on conditioning a continuation marker versus a terminal marker. Working hard on my dog's weights on trail and heels and want a way to communicate she's doing a good job by not breaking what she is doing. Okay, you could be asking two different things, so I'm going to answer both. You could be asking about kind of a, a weight there, the food is coming to you marker, which I recommend for stationary behaviors. So for my dogs, they learn if I say good, I'm bringing food to them, they should stay there. I teach it just by doing it. You just say good, you bring them food. Say good, bring them food. And then I teach a lot of my stay behaviors like this. I don't teach anything that is in motion like this because they can't stay in motion. You might also, though, be asking, because you mentioned healing and not just waiting, you might also be asking about a keep going signal, a KGS. So a keep going signal is not a you earned reward signal. It is a you're on the right track signal. And I would actually caution you against trying to condition one. We teach them on accident all the time because we just are praising and talking to dogs and that's fine. It's fine if we're being careful about it. It's fine if there's no kind of ill effects coming out. But essentially, I would recommend teaching 
that the dog stays still and waits for reinforcement on a certain word. And I wouldn't super recommend trying to teach a keep going signal because people generally speaking do not do a good job of it and tend to confuse the dog. Next one's from Celine. Celine writes, my teenage border collie gets excited about the sound of dog agility on videos. He whines and becomes unsettled. He will also get excited about agility if it's on the TV and seems visually aware of the dog moving quickly on the screen. Even if the volume is turned off, he's looking intently at the TV. I rarely watch agility on my TV, but I'm curious as to whether agility sounds on my computer and eventually agility on the TV could be a valuable training opportunity for me since I'd eventually like him to be functional ringside at agility trials. And if I were to experiment with this, would it be wisest to go with a desensitization route, so low volume, leave agility on 24-7, or an active training route, turn agility sounds on as background noise, only during our active training time when he's getting direct cues from me and regular food toy reinforcement. So Celine, to answer kind of that last part of your question, which would be the better way to go? That would be, that would depend on which response you want. Do the, do you want the dog active and engaged with you when they hear those sounds or do you want him to ignore those sounds? So if you want him to ignore the sounds, it's low volume, leave it on all the time, go straight desensitization like that. But if the dog is needing to always be engaged with you when hearing those sounds, I would go that second route. However, this probably won't translate to real life. So it will help you with the TV sounds and the computer sounds, but it will probably not help you with the trial, unfortunately. Callie writes, my two and a half year old Corgi cattle dog mix and I love to hike. In your trail etiquette episode, you mentioned that you don't like picking up your small dog. My dog is generally neutral, but can get nervous around large dogs due to some bad interactions. Lately, I've been picking my dog up and carrying him past dogs on the trail. The dogs we typically see have little to no recall, ignorant handlers, and can be over overly friendly. In situations like this, I typically ask for them to recall their dog or tell them mine is not friendly, and he just doesn't want a strange dog in his face. Could my picking him up negatively impact his behavior or our relationship? I make sure to reward him when we do this. Any other tips for how to handle these situations? Finding less populated trails isn't an option where we live. Ultimately, his safety is my number one priority. It is okay to pick them up if you're worried for their safety. It is okay to pick them up if they feel more secure when you do so. A lot of dogs get more nervous when you do that because you kind of remove their agency, but this is a case-by-case situation. I pick Rhea up if I'm worried about this dog that's approaching us. So I'm kind of using my body language understanding. I'm using my skills to look at this dog and kind of make a decision as to whether or not I think this dog is safe and just annoying or unsafe. And if I think the dog's unsafe, I'm picking her up. I'm putting my hand on my spray shield. I'm getting ready to get that dog away from us. That is extremely rare. Typically, instead, I'm kind of letting dogs have a greeting, but it sounds like your dog is upset about the greeting. So if you need to pick him up, give him some cookies, put him back down when you're past the dogs, that sounds like that would probably be okay. So what I always say is if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. So if it doesn't look like it's a problem to you, then it probably isn't. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.